This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 106. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Happy holidays to you, and welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 106 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. I am uh, sitting here in the spare bedroom in my in-law's house because I realized I hadn't recorded the monologue to Episode 106 before I left. I thought I did, but apparently I didn't, so here I am. And I'm really uh, excited to bring you a fantastic show here with one of my personal idols in the world of recording. I'm talking about Mr. Don Ziantara, who is the owner and chief engineer and, you know, the the man who wears many hats over at Inner Ear Recording Studio in uh, Arlington, Virginia. Don has been at the center of the DC hardcore scene. And when I say that, we're talking about... Uh, the Teen Idols, uh, Minor Threat, Rites of Spring, Bad Brains, Fugazi, Jawbox, a uh, bunch of different bands. Can't possibly name them all, but uh, Don's relationship with Ian Mackay and um, Discord Records goes back quite a ways. The importance of the DC hardcore scene and Discord Records and uh, Don and the studio. In terms of music history, if you really are well-versed in music history, you would know that that scene in the D.C. area is pretty important. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you know, Google Discord Records, Google Don Ciantara, Google Fugazi. You know, I think you'll come up with uh, all the basics to explain to you how important in United States music history, or in music history in general, how important Don is to that whole scene. Um, you can also catch, if you've seen uh, the Foo Fighters' Sonic Highways show on HBO, you might have seen Dave Grohl and, and the band pull into D.C., or in, actually in Arlington, I should say, in Arlington, Virginia, uh, pull in and, and work at the studio, uh, at Don's studio, for a good chunk of time. And you get a glimpse of Don, you get a glimpse of the studio. So... Yeah, Don Ziantara coming up. I'm I'm traveling right now, and so I took that opportunity to reach out to Don, and uh, he graciously had me come by the studio, which is just a big chunk of history in itself, and we sat down for a great conversation. So uh, you'll hear all about it. So there it is, Don Ziantara coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So yeah, so I'm traveling, and uh, I'm sitting here. I'm actually sitting at the end of an air mattress with my laptop and my uh, my Apollo twin from Universal Audio and uh, my Audio uh, Technica mic for this trip is uh, the BP four thousand one, which is the uh, handheld dynamic mic. So, as they say, um, have recording rig, will travel. So there it is. Uh, snow on the ground here in Michigan in Farmington Hills, where I'm uh, at at the moment, and. Um, not much to report, just, uh, you know, it's been a great year, and I hope uh, everybody's having a, a happy holiday time. If it hasn't been your year, and, or if it's been a challenging year, stay positive, stay focused on the next year. I don't mean to sound self-righteous here, but keep tuning into Working Class Audio and, and continue to uh, get ideas and inspiration from uh, those out in the trenches doing the thing that we all love to do, and that's record, whether it's music or, or sound design or Whatever it is, recording, yeah, we all enjoy it one way or the other. 
I don't have much uh, prepared for you in my monologue today except that. So just want to, you know, just wish all of you uh, a happy holiday, a happy new year. I'm looking forward to this next year with more Working Class Audio podcast for you. So uh, that's it. Yeah. Let's get to it. Let's uh, take a listen to my conversation here with Don Z and Tara here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It is an absolute honor to be in this room and to be sitting here with you because I have, I moved to San Francisco around 1988. Yeah, September 6, 1988. And I was playing in a band and my bandmates had turned me on to Fugazi, which of course led to being turned on to, you know, Minor Threat and Rites of Spring. Mm-hmm. I'd already knew who Bad Brains w- were. And, and so those records stuck with me and have stuck with me through time. And, you know, I'd met you previously at, uh, at tape, tape op conferences. And, that or the potluck one. Or, or potluck, right. <laughs> and met Ian, of course. And, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be a fanboy and say, you know, to meet your your heroes, but I mean, really, those those records have meant a lot to me over the years. And when I discovered who you were and had the opportunity to meet you, I was just beside myself. I was like, "There's Don Z and Tara, my God!" <laughs> so I say that every morning. <laughs> <laughs> you look in the mirror and say, "Oh, oh my yeah. God, there's shit. I'm still here." You know. <laughs> No, so it's you know it's great to be here and it's it's great to have a chat with you. You have long been on my mind to talk to you because of anybody that I think kind of fits that model for my podcast of you know working in the trenches. Mm-hmm. You've been working in the trenches several years. Yeah. So so for the listener, we're now we're at Inner Ear Studios in Arlington, Virginia, and kind of a kind of an industrial area there's some very new, industrial new developments across the road i saw actually this is this street and it goes down a few more blocks is the last industrial area in arlington there is no more it just for some reason they crossed the creek which you saw i don't know if you went to eat there at all uh, there's some snazzy restaurants and places and it's very upscale mm-hmm. it just got fixed up it was basically car dealerships and they mainly use cars for car dealerships and things like that and this sort of it comes down to the last bastion of uh, industrial places you know places where you could uh, get used tires or buy new tires or have your car fixed and that's about it that theme of you know i know we you know the talk of gentrification goes on around the around the country you know, and we're no stranger to it in the Bay Area. While it does bring economic prosperity to some, it definitely can impact small businesses, definitely studios for sure, who tend to set up in industrial areas where the rent is lower and the spaces are flexible and the landlords are happy to have you. What's been your experience in this space over the years and how long have, has, has Inner Ear been in this location? We've been here since 1990. And it's changed dramatically. First of all, rents. And uh, you can imagine which way they went. <laughs> so that, that changed a great deal. And just seeing everything get prettied up all around us, like across the creek and, oh, if you go up the hill, a lot of the living areas and the uh, residential areas 
have been uh, cleaned up quite a bit. There was um, up the hill from this was a big drug selling area and for Arlington and across the creek, like I said, was uh, kind of uh, used cars, different dealerships. They would have their new cars selling in the more high scale areas in Arlington. But then if you wanted their used cars, you would have to come here. I came in and the rent was good. A lot of space. Of course, studios need space. And uh, everything seems to be pretty good. I, I had, you know, it was a warehouse that was basically just open. So you might say it was a empty pallet in a lot of ways or an empty canvas, um, which is for better or for worse. I mean, you have to, you have to build it up. <laughs> and um, so we, we uh, just moved in and just started working on the thing. And um, it, that was, it was, a, it was a good move in a lot of ways. It, you know, we were recording in the basement before that, and I think recording in the basement, you, a lot of the historic, if you will, records uh, were recorded in the basement under conditions that I would consider intolerable. <laughs> uh, the, the tape machine was sitting next to the furnace. I mean, we're talking about like inches from the furnace. Wow. Uh, there was a water heater about three or four feet away from that. The walls were kind of crumbly and calcifying. Uh, the ceilings were seven-foot ceilings. Cymbals, sometimes when a drummer went up to hit a cymbal, he would hit the ceiling instead. Uh, it was, and it was small. It was small. The, the area was pretty small. Nobody could really be isolated in her own little area. Or and you're like fairly tall. Yeah. And this was, we were, the, the control room was in the furnace room, obviously, which had no windows and just one door. So in the summertime, with the water heater in there and everything, it would get intolerably hot. Eventually, I sort of jerry-rigged an air conditioner to, to pump air conditioning into the place, but it would get so hot at times, we would do mixes until we were just feeling woozy. And then the mix was finished. Uh, but that was, that was the way it was done. But one of the primary reasons for, I guess, the success of that was the timing. It, wouldn't, it would be a joke for it to happen now like that. But at the time, uh, the punk bands were looking for a real experience as far as recording. They didn't want the... Um, the overhyped, uh, production-laden um, recording of that day. And you could, I'm not going to name any bands, but you could work them out in your head. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of them. <clears throat> Very dead, you know, with the, you know, the wallets or stuff on the snare drum and everything else was deadened uh, to the max. Rooms were deadened. Control rooms uh, were deadened, too, for the most part. And they wanted something that brought out the energy. And even though I had crummy equipment, we're talking Radio Shack microphones, you know, the kind with the, the AA batteries in them, <laughs> um, and just terrible, oh, just the equipment was, it wasn't terrible, it was just so primal that I just, I, well, that's what we used. But that's what wasn't on their mind as far as recording. They wanted that experience and I can give them that experience, not through my equipment, 
but I just found that their uh, music and energy was uh, really enthralling and just, I was a big fan at that time. I became one. I wasn't one to start out, but I became one. And the, and the other studios, well, you know, we don't want the punks in there. You know, they're going to mess up the place and they might, you know, they might put their fists through a wall or something like that. And so, but they don't. They, they were, these were the nicest guys I've met. Um, most of them were extremely respectful of the place and the equipment. Uh, people just have different images. So the timing was everything. And at this point in time, I mean, like I said, that it wouldn't have got off the ground at all. And it's interesting you talk about classic records being made in basements. I think uh, in less than ideal conditions, one of the more classics I can think of is uh, Exile on Main Street. I think it was made in the basement of the the French whatever chateau that the Stones were in. And all the stories I've read is that it was just ungodly hot. And everybody had to, you know, take their shirts off. But that highlights your point. But as you say, that wouldn't necessarily happen in those, those, that circumstance would not repeat itself today. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's, um, first of all, musicians are looking for different things. I think sometimes to their detriment, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you mean by that? I mean, I mean that there, uh, some are fixated too much on equipment. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, once again, this is Larry's uh, rant, but, um, they want to see some quality stuff. You don't necessarily need quality stuff. What you need is you need to have the right equipment or, or stuff that does the job, and you need to have it assembled so that it all works together. And it working together is a very, very big part of it. I know studios who have some oh fantastic equipment, great preamps, um, you know, they have the, uh, you know, Pro Tools HD SX, you know, like the Camaro SX ET or whatever. <laughs> and, and, but, and, and the, somehow it doesn't all connect. It just sounds wrong. Maybe it's the speakers, maybe it's the monitoring, maybe it's the wiring they use, maybe it's the kind of connections. Um, you know, people aren't, people aren't too concerned about how these things connect. Back in the um, back in the days of, I'd say the fifties, maybe early sixties, people were more aware of the connections. Where the reason why we have six hundred ohm transformers in a lot of the older pieces of equipment was because so they would match more easily with the next piece in line. And I think we aren't aware that matching up wasn't that easy back then. And if you didn't match up. Things would sound kind of weird. Hmm. Um, you know, you would lose high end or you'd lose some bass or there might be some, just some problems as far as having the level you need or things like that. So that's very important. I think it's a very important aspect of it, just to getting it to match. Some people definitely have the money to, put, to buy all the best, but they have no idea how to right. put it together in a cohesive way or uh, in an organized fashion so mm. that you can create and get get the equipment out of the way so that the musicians can do what they need to do yeah one of the saddest things i see are bands or single musicians who have go out to their um, 
favorite music store or online, and you know the places, and they spend three to $10,000 getting all the right pieces. They get it all home, and they can't quite get it to work the way they want it to work, or it doesn't have the results that they want. And they, of course, they call up and say, well, you know, they talk with the company representative, whatever the hell that means, and, <laughs> you know, um, or sales representative, and, and they try to guide them through these things, and it still doesn't sound the way uh, the person who bought it wants it to sound. And after they've spent all that money, they probably think, that, you know, geez, I should have gone to a studio and got it done correctly. I would have spent far less, and it, I'd have something. I'd, I'd have a, a CD or a, a compilation of songs or whatever. And it'd be finished. That'd be all there is to it. So the money is going towards gear these days, uh, a perceived gear that will make my recordings better. And and that's an endless journey because, you know, it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, if I get this microphone, my vocals are going to be notched up tremendously. Well, maybe, maybe not. And also, once you do get that microphone, there's another microphone that's going to notch it up even more, and another microphone that's going to notch it up even more. And then, you know, and then you're on to, well, if I get a 251, someone's got it on sale for less than $20,000, I can, <laughs> I, can, I can really sound like Frank Sinatra. Well, no, no, you aren't. It's not going to happen like that, you know? It's, it just doesn't. And it's sad to see. I, I, that, these are the things that are quite sad. A studio owner's... If they fall prey to that that game, then it really can quickly take a business down. Yep. Super fast. Yeah, you can go in debt like mad. Sounds like you have a, a fairly healthy perception of it all uh, and what not to do. I'm sure you've you've learned a few things over the years of studio ownership. What are some of the mistakes that you made as it pertains to gear and that concept of chasing the gear? Well, first of all, I've I made a lot of mistakes as far as uh, the things I've just covered, as far as thinking that something will really be the uh, secret elixir uh, that'll do it, that'll hold all my mixes together or have the right sound or things like this. And inevitably, you get it, and you've spent your hard-earned money on it, and you plug the sucker in, and... Damn it, you, you, if it doesn't sound great, you're willing it to sound great. <laughs> you know, you want it to sound great. And by God, I think I hear it. I think it's really doing some magic out there. And it really <laughs> isn't. It's it just, you know, it's, it may make it a little bit better, but it just isn't. But you've spent all that money on it, and you, you do convince yourself that it, it is better. But as far as staying away from that type feeling, the number one problem solver is to get a little bit into electronics. You've got to be able to do some of the basic stuff as far as like uh, um, fixing cables, putting plugs on, fixing any kind of connection. I'm not talking about, you know, major design or anything like that, but if you can get into your pieces, and there are some pieces that you could still get into and fix, You've got to be able to get in there and take a look around. And sometimes you, you know, sometimes something goes wrong in some piece, and you open it up, and um, 
you know, with my knowledge, I can't see anything too much wrong. And you do definitely have to send it off to get fixed or something. But sometimes it is obvious. Sometimes it's a fuse that they have hidden in there. And I know that these days it's tougher than ever to, 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 to fix things because they don't give you drawings or schematics with pieces of equipment anymore. But you've got to be able to get into the electronic side of things to save yourself some money so that hopefully you won't be spending that money you saved on new gear that's going to be a, a secret magic bullet. It's almost like cars these days. You know, yeah. cars are getting more complex. More than ever, it's more complex. And nowadays, with a lot of common gear, they're shrinking, circuit yeah. boards are smaller. And I tell you, I've opened up some pieces of gear and taken a look around and thought, I'm not going to touch that. I'm going to goof something up. There's Everything's so small. And not only mm. can I not see it, but so it's... Yeah, it's a double-edged sword in a lot of ways. Pieces of gear are more unfixable, except for the most professional pieces. But at the same time, some of the lower-end things, uh, like I've got headphone amps out there that are, I won't name names uh, but the, or brands or anything like that, but you know them all. Mm -hmm. They're cheap. The little mixers, you know, four-channel, five-channel, six-channel mixers are cheap. And they were a lot cheaper than when I started out. Matter of fact, when I started out recording with a four-track, actually a stereo tape recorder, you couldn't buy a small mixer. I mean, it just was not available. The, the Mackies and the Behringers that we have now were not available in the least. I, you just can't get them. Mm -hmm. So I had to actually research it and find out how to build them, which is not that difficult. It's not that difficult to build them. But now we have them, and they're at a price where I have to admit... I, I wouldn't build it again, another small mixer, because these things are so small, and they they do sound pretty good, mm -hmm. and they're cheap. And when they break, which inevitably they will, they're cheap enough so you could throw them out and, and get another one. And I know that's not great for the ecology, but that's the way it is. That's what we're being pushed into, unfortunately, which is sad. Just kind of moving a little little broader view this space you've been in since 1990, um, you built this out yourself, I assume, with maybe a little well, help from some friends. Well, yeah, and I had a guy in construction do it too. Okay. Trading time, you know that type thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what's the current state of affairs now? I noticed there was a, another room with another mixer at yeah. the front. Is there was a front room. It's, um, you know, the way I envisioned this, there'd be a long hallway, which there kind of is down there, and there's... The front room was, uh, was really not thought out too well. I wanted to sort of leave that undeveloped, which is not probably the best way to walk into a studio, see undeveloped rooms. But uh, eventually they sort of did get developed, and uh, the only way to make them viable is to have someone else run them. So another engineer runs that. Uh, Eamon from Bastille Studios runs that. And uh, he records a little bit, mixes a little bit, and he uses that space. It's not huge, but we, uh, you know, at least it's being used. Mm -hmm. So obviously paying rent into the, the bigger pool. Yeah. Um, what's been your strategy over since 1990 till now? I mean, here we are in 20, at the end of 2016 here. That's a good run for a studio in terms of time. And you're still, you know, from all appearances going strong. 
What's been your strategy for survival over the years? A lot of it's very scrappy. <laughs> um, with a studio and starting out a studio, if you're just building one up, mm -hmm. the hardest thing in the world is to get some kind of buffer, to have like a little bit of cash that you could fall back on when you need it. And there's you know, certainly going to be times when you need it. Uh, whether it's uh, you know a month where there's no one walking through the door and you're staring at the telephone, or a month where you know one of your favorite pieces of equipment or several of them go down and you, you've got to have fixed, trying to get that and trying to somehow keep that, maybe get a line of credit from one of the local banks that knows you, is very helpful because that acts like a buffer. Just having something to to pull you through those times that aren't going to be that great. Yeah. That's the only way to do it. That diversification, for sure. We talk a lot about diversification on this show. Yeah. Can you talk a little more about diversification on your from your experiences? Sure. It's a funny topic because I've seen too many businesses diversify and they end up um, the only pleasant and polite way of saying it is they don't know what they're doing or they go into areas where they don't know what they're doing. And the same thing could be true for the studio. So you got to really be very careful about it. Um, I, and you don't know if you've gone too far probably until you do it, but you have to be aware that, you know, you maybe need to pull back or you know, trim down some of the things. What I've done here is obviously the, the, the recording and uh, the fact that projects come in sometimes piecemeal. In other words, something to mix, but I've never recorded it, and I won't master it. Something to master, but I didn't record it or didn't mix it. You know, little pieces of things. Or sometimes people will come in just to do drums or just to do vocals, things like that. Uh, I have students that I'm teaching audio to right now. Uh, that's part of just, you know, age in terms of like, I know I've got some ideas about how to do this stuff. Why not pass them on to some other people too? Mm -hmm. So that, and teaching them the equipment, uh, how to use the equipment, how, what, uh, one of my favorite pieces of equipment is a compressor, but there are all kinds of compressors and they confuse a lot of people and they confuse a lot of engineers in terms of like, well, what about this compressor compared to that compressor? And what's the difference between them? And they're, they're complex little animals. And if you know what you're getting into and how it reacts and what it's supposed to do, maybe it'll serve you a little bit better. Once again, I think it comes down to if you know how to use your tools, you'll do a pretty good job at it. When we also talk about diversification, renting space out to another mm -hmm. engineer, I think, could almost fall into that yep. category. Sure. Um, do you ever do things kind of outside the purview of music? Yes. Um, readings, voiceovers, not much. Um, but occasionally mm -hmm. we'll do that. Um, it's uh, just a matter of uh, what it is. Usually I'll do voiceovers for directors and producers that I know, mm -hmm. and I know that they're, what their projects are. Commercials, I, I I haven't done a commercial in easily 
15 years. I don't know where, I guess they take place mainly at the radio stations now. Yeah, I think a lot of ad agencies. In ad agencies, they've got their own They've got studios. Yeah. For sure. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think that your relationship with Ian and Discord and all that comes with that whole scene, I assume that that has benefited you in terms of, you know, people coming from places far and wide possibly to work with you because you're the guy that made those records with them. Is that accurate? Uh, that, that is accurate. No, it definitely is. It's, um, it works both ways though, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm both known for doing those records, but people think of the studio as almost like a punk rock studio. And I, uh, I do lots of different styles of music. A whole range of different styles. As a matter of fact, just a few days ago, I went out and did a choir. And people don't think of this studio as that. They think of a more punk rock, more raucous rock music. And, you know, my slant in a lot of things is more towards pop, pop music, good, good original pop music. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there's a, once you have that brand, you're there. <laughs> You yeah you <laughs> you're known for that yeah and, you're known for that you're typecast so to speak well and I mean when you walk into the studio you know it's there's a history on these walls pictures and albums and it's it definitely tells that story yep when I walk in here th- there's such a personal touch and there's like that that rich history on the walls that I spoke of uh, I like that but in trying to sell a, a studio space. You ever have second thoughts like, hmm, do I need to change a little bit of that to make other people feel comfortable, or does that even cross your mind? I think about it quite a bit, oh. and I was thinking about instituting a coat and tie culture here, with, <laughs> you know, white shirts, right? Um, you know, can't take your jacket off until it's five o'clock, um, <laughs> yeah, but sometimes I get that feeling that, you know, people walking in have that sort of like, uh, you know, what is this? You know, but uh, uh, in a way, I just can't bother worrying about it. I mean, there's no other way to put it, really. I mean, some things you try to fix or adjust and other things, I mean, this is just part of what I am. I, along with those walls, I've got some, Irish music and Gaelic music, and there's some um, uh, Spanish, uh, Northern Mexican music too. Mm-hmm. But people look at it, and the, the vast majority is the punk rock, so they think, you know, that's what it is. That's too bad. It's yeah. too bad. That's all I could say. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to downplay it. It's what it is. Yeah. And that's why I've done a lot of. I mean, you know, I walk in, I'm right at home. I feel this is. You know, this is the place to be, but... Because you're just a punk. Because <laughs> <laughs> it already... Yeah, I'm just a punk. Don Z and Tara here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let's take a little break here from our interview with Don. I want to just mention something specific from one of our sponsors, Audio-Technica. You know, it's the end of the year, and of course, as we sometimes get to the end of the year, not only are we looking at uh, sales of products because everybody's trying to, you know, give us great prices so they can 
pump up their bottom line for the end of the year. And microphones, of course, is something that is fun to buy. And, of course, it's one more write-off before the end of the year, before we get to uh, paying our taxes. So one of my favorite mics that Audio-Technica makes is the AT4047. And it's priced really well. Uh, you can find it for roughly around $525 at the current time here in December. It's 2016, December. So if you're out there looking, shop around. comes with a shock mount. Comes with this little bag to cover it up if you keep it on a stand. Of course, comes with a box. It's just a workhorse condenser mic, you know, at the end of the day. It's got that 4050 body that we're all used to, I think. 80 hertz high pass filter, 10 dB pad, shock mount, of course. And uh, it's just got all the typical things that, you know, an Audio Technica mic has the ability to handle high SPL. Um, I just like it because it sounds good on a lot of different sources. It doesn't cost a lot of money. And, uh, well, I mean, you know, 500 bucks is still a chunk of money, but it doesn't cost a lot of money for the bang for the buck factor, I think. And I just really think it's a fantastic mic. So if you're out shopping and you need a new condenser mic, I definitely encourage you to check out the 4047. We've got samples up on the Working Class Audio site. Those are from earlier uh, about a year and a half ago, we did those samples. So check it out. Hear for yourself. Make your own judgment call. But check it out. Yeah, the AT4047, one of my favorites. All right, let's get back into it with Don Ziantara here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I mean, obviously, rents go up. That's just a fact of renting. But at any point, have you thought, uh-oh, we're going to get kicked out. This whole building and this whole block is going to be taken down and be turned into high-rise, you know, $1 million condos. Well, it is. Oh. <laughs> um, we just don't know when. Right. Um, there is actually a movement by the county to change this whole strip along this side of the creek into big parkland. And along with some uh, retail and residential places. And all of the business owners, most of the business owners here, uh, have formed an association. We have our own lawyer and that to keep us informed of what the county is doing. Now, what's going in our favor is if they take it over by eminent domain, the cost of these buildings is so high, or the, I should say the assessment is so high, that they can't afford it at this point. At some point, the county will be able to afford it. My, my landlord is right on the other side of this building, just down, if you go through the back wall, he's there. And they have a very good relationship, and... He doesn't think it's going to happen for another five years at least, uh, just because it's so massive. I mean, the building I'm in, once again, cinder block, uh, metal roof, nothing special, uh, you know, concrete floor. It's $4 million it's been assessed at, which is just like, I wouldn't pay $4 million for it. <laughs> but that's what it's been assessed at. And if they need to buy this along with all the other buildings, if they're going to uh, buy all these buildings to turn it into a park, uh, they would need a huge wad of cash. And I'm at a point where basically at some point I'm 68. So, you know, I'm not going to be around here forever. And that's, uh, that's one of the things I'm looking at. I'm saying, you know, well, five years, mm, you know, I could be out of here hmm. in five years. You don't look 68, by the way. Well, thanks very much. <laughs> but, you know... At this point, with a head cold and a cough, <laughs> I, feel, I feel at least about 94. Aches and pains, yeah. Aches and pains. Uh, 
But that's what we're looking at at this point. So eventually it's going to change, uh, and they will take it over. There's, there's a lot of undercurrents in there. Right next door to us is the Arlington uh, County Creative, I forget what they call it, Creative Arts Building. And I am in um, pretty close contact with the, uh, the head of it, who um, is looking at maybe somehow doing something uh, with the recording program. We tried setting up a studio in that building there, which unfortunately is um, all the rooms bleed into each other. So it mm. really was very, very difficult without some major construction stuff being done. So it just didn't work too well. But maybe they would hold on to, you know, using this as some sort of a studio. I don't know if they need to, but she's got some ideas. Whether or not they'll pan out is, uh, is another thing. But, you know, I hope that uh, we can keep it alive. Arlington basically is pretty good as far as the arts. They fund it pretty well. Uh, they have a lot of grants going on, and they have a lot of different things as far as uh, programs for the arts and the arts in the schools and things like that. So they're very much aware of it. Whether or not that plays into the survival of the studio is another thing. I'm curious, as we're, as we're talking about Arlington, you know, I, as I mentioned to you as when I walked in, you know, I have a brother that's lived in, in the area in D.C. and in Virginia for about 35 years. I'm curious about the, the direct influence of the political establishment, no matter what party. It's pretty clear that no matter what's going on in the rest of the country financially, there's a lot of money in D.C., is what I've come to understand. And there's all these lobbying firms and there's, you know, all these different government jobs and there's, there's a lot of money to be had from, from if you're in that world. And I'm curious if that world, how that impacts the arts, does it, in, in your experience over the years, is there anything that you've observed that you've scratched your head and thought, well, that's great or that's, or this is awful or what's, What's the scene in that respect? I think there is a lot of money in D.C. Definitely people have a lot of money. People that come into town because, well, I don't know what begat what, but the rents are high, but the salaries are high. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, the cost of living is high for all the different things, gas, oil, electricity, things like that. But you make a good distinction when you say the arts. The arts never have money. <laughs> You know, if you're talking about arts, it mainly means you're either going to survive or you're going to go under. And if you're going to survive, you're not going to, you're not going to become a rich person. I mean, I, I, know, I don't know any rich studio owners, I have to say. I mean, I just don't. They got rich from their studios. They got rich from their studios, Because I, yes. I know plenty of studio people yeah. that were yeah. rich and bought oh, yeah. studios. No, I know yeah. one guy who worked for Microsoft, and he had like a couple million dollars in the bank, and he, you know, I'm going to make a studio and things like that. And there's one developer I know that um, set up a studio. He bought a big place out in McLean. And, uh, you know, you could do that mm. with other money. But you don't make money from the arts, any arts, theater, visual, poetry, you name it. And recording studios fall right in that uh, thing because supposedly they're essential for music. And uh, you just aren't going to make money from it. So... You're going to be scrapping all the time, and uh, that's just the nature of it. That's just the nature of it. You're going to be looking for uh, ways to somehow 
optimize what you're doing and 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 what you're you know what you're going to be working on and things like that. So that's uh, that that's just the nature of the whole beast there. As we were making our coffee before we got started, we were kind of touching on. Um, I brought up seeing Ian uh, from Fugazi and Discord on a panel talk about pre-buying time. Discord knew that they were going to, Ian knew he was going to bring bands here. Ian knew that he was going to spend his money here and made the investment to pre-buy time, as as I recall him talking about that. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more, not only about that aspect, but how has your relationship with Discord benefited the studio over the years? Has it been like a constant flow of records? It was. Now less so, because there's just been a lot of uh, re-releases. But let's go back a little bit to the yeah. pre-buying time. I mean, that, that's a very simple concept, where um, uh, I remember initially I needed a 8-track, or I wanted an 8-track. I don't know if I needed it, but I needed well, I wanted one. And I didn't have the money to buy it. And at the time, uh, my bank account would uh, would not cover anything like that would not support that no so i said uh, you know they had some money coming in and i said hey you know if you buy some time and i'm going to give you a good rate we could uh, both make out on this thing and so they did that and and they did that for a 16 track and they did that for the 24 track and this mixing board too and it just worked out incredibly well because first of all i didn't have to take out a loan for it i consider that what they what they got there, the rate they got was extremely good, but uh, you know there there is a, a, a an interest payment to be made because I'm working for something that's uh, you know less so, so that you know there's the interest in there. So it works out in many ways to be clean and efficient, mm-hmm. and to everyone's benefit. I mean, I'm glad. To work with them and to give them that time and i'm very very happy with the working arrangement it just uh it turned out incredibly well uh you know but that's i guess that's just knowing you know clients and i think every engineer if they've been working for a few years at the business uh knows clients who can uh you know probably step up and 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 help them out mm-hmm. one way or another, whether it's buying time or, or something else. I, you know, you could sort of say, I know that um, there are some engineers that uh, say, you know, I need to buy this piece of equipment and you want to go halves on the thing and you'll own half of the thing. Um, you know, I don't know how those arrangements work out. I've never done something like that, but I know people who have and they say it's uh, worked out pretty well. Hmm. Um, you know, anything like that is kind of neat. Of course, you have to consider all this stuff a partnership and really, really get down to the details, which is something that a lot of artists don't like to do if the artist is the studio owner, which it means, you know, contracts and writing it all out and having everybody review it and okay it and all that stuff. Uh, so it does get a little bit legal, I guess. But it's, um, it's, it's definitely worth it if you can get it. Because it, it'll help you out immensely without putting you in debt. And there are good points to you know, having a little bit of a line of credit too. Uh, you know, because you build up your credit and all that stuff. But that aside, um, you know, these arrangements could be very, very helpful. 
I look at your situation with Discord, it's it's pretty miraculous in some ways because they're a small business, you're a small business. There's a, a symbiosis there that you know you can't uh, manufacture. It's kind of tough to have a studio from scratch these days. Yeah, it is. The only way to to really make it is to look at your talents mm -hmm. and then use them all. <laughs> exactly. Uh, really, I mean, just utilizing what you have. It's almost, um, it's very simple, but that's really the only way to do it because you're going to be cut off at certain times for certain lengths of times from different parts of it, whether it's no clients coming in, whether it's, Nobody wants you to uh, mix anything or compose something or something. You know, different pieces are going to be cut off, and you're going to have to rely on other sources of mm -hmm. income. That's, a, you know, it's the long and the short of it. So you have to really utilize everything you have. We've talked a lot about threats from the outside or challenges. What's working What's the positive? What's working for you from not only an artistic standpoint, but from a business standpoint? Like, what can you point to and say, ah, these things have contributed to the success? And mm, you know the answer to that. It's reputation. That's what it comes down to, really. I think that people trust uh, a reputation of a place. They, they always have, and they always will. Mm. And I don't see that changing in the future. Now, starting out a studio, you don't have a reputation. So it's sort of like catch-22. How do I get a reputation when I don't have a reputation? I did that so long ago that the whole paradigm is changed now. I don't know exactly how to do it. I know it involves recording a lot for free. I know it involves uh, just making contact and networking with a lot of creative people, and I, I, I'm not using the word musician, just creative people, because you don't know where it's going to lead. I mean, sometimes, um, you know, a dancer in a, in, a, in, a, in a company will know artists or musicians or things like that. Um, it just, you just don't know where these things are going to lead. But it is easier with uh, these groups that are getting together and meeting and talking about the arts. Um, you could do that and see where that goes. It's tough. It just, you know, there is no pat way of doing it. It's, mm -hmm. it's not like any other business, of course. It's just, it's the arts. It's the arts, which means it's, it's, it's fungible and it's changing all the time. So, you know, if I knew what route to take, uh, it'd, be, <laughs> it'd be easy <laughs> or it'd be easier. Right. But there isn't, there really isn't. It just, uh, and, and also, just keeping in mind that the client you have in the studio today, mm -hmm. uh, he's under no obligation to come back to you. So what you're doing is you better put out your best effort every time. And that goes for people that have worked with you for a long time. They could say, you know, hey, there, or they could think, this is, he's getting kind of complacent. He's, you know, sliding here and there and... No, no, no. You don't want that to happen. That's, that's not good. That's really, really not good. You've got to be on your toes all the time. Uh, and, and putting out what you think is your absolute best stuff uh, for, that, for that person or that group. Because you're, you know, if your name's going to be on it, people are going to look at it and say, 
you know, he did this. Mm-hmm. Do we like this or don't we like this? Can you talk about the ecosystem? What about the ecosystem that you encounter of, and when I talk about that, I'm talking about like, like Nashville, Nashville's got studios, musicians, labels, there's an mm-hmm. infrastructure there. Is there much of an infrastructure here, big, small, or otherwise? Not like Nashville. It's not like Nashville at all. Um, I don't know much about Nashville, but from what I've heard and read, it's um, it's really set up, and it's taken a long time to set up too. But it's it's running very efficiently, and it's running well. Now, what happens in a city like this is it is overshadowed by everything else that's going on, whether it's the Pentagon or the political uh, regime that's going on or things like that. There's every, there's a lot of different things that overshadow it. And the music industry itself, I mean, if we're talking about recording music, mm-hmm. gets shoved to a lesser extent uh, down the down the list as far as the things that are kind of important to the city. So um, there are pieces missing, and sometimes it's not like a city like Nashville, I assume, or say New York City or L.A., where there aren't pieces missing, or there are so many pieces that if one piece goes missing, the industry still hums along very, very nicely. Here, things will wane a little bit on some end, whether it's the club level whether it's the, the, the bands that are, are seem to be sprouting up um, or something or other, or studios themselves, it just changes a little bit here and there. So it, it's not as viable as some of those cities, I guess. Mm. Uh, it's not as, it's not as uh, hopping. Things, you know, if you're a studio in Nashville, chances are if you are a competent recording engineer, you'll have clients coming in. Uh, but if you go to uh, Piqua, Ohio, you can be very competent. You can get a great rent on a place, but you may have no clients for the first year because you need all these things. In order for, for you to exist, you need to have the artists in the town. And for the artists in the town, you need to have some incentive to have the artists there. And maybe it's clubs. Maybe it's clubs that will play original music uh, or let play music, original music. Or maybe it's it's a lot of different things. It may be enticements from the, from the political system and the community uh, to, to, to help out some of these things, to have venues in the summertime for bands to play. I mean, all it takes is a county having, say, one stage, and they say, well, during the summertime, we're going to have every couple of weeks, we're going to have a, a band play there. And you know, a lot of 16-year-olds will say, well, let's form a band so we can play there. And you know, the next thing you know, they're going to be thinking about recording something. And these things all sort of snowball. And this isn't like Nashville, but it's not bad. That's about what it comes down to. It continues to be, continues to have those pieces, venues, it does. bands. It does. And like I said, they go in and out. They sort of, you know, less now, but more later. Yeah. I know there's a new 930 Club, but I did pass by where mm-hmm. the old 930 Club was, and that's mm-hmm. now a J. Crew. My brother and I sat there and we we're like, oh. I was I was so bummed. Sometimes what it takes is uh, people who really want to get things done. And nine thirty club is a good example. The old nine thirty club. I was working at the National Gallery of Art uh, back in the seventies, and 
a guy I was in the band with beforehand, um, and then we the band quit. He came up one day and said, and he was pl- still playing in music. He played a lot of what was known as new wave at the time. I don't know if your listeners will know what new wave was, but new wave was, you know, was was the new thing, and it was kind of original music, kind of like Roxy's type, Roxy type music and stuff like that. Anyway, he came up to my place at the National Gallery. He said, um, "What are you doing for lunch?" He said, "Nothing planned." He said, "Let's go down to this place." few blocks away i got a feeling we could uh, we can get to play here because at the time original music was not really wanted in the clubs here yeah. uh what you wanted to do was you if you wanted to get into the clubs you would play a i would say about 80 percent cover tunes you could slip in some original stuff but they had their band played pretty much all original music i'd say 100 percent original music so they were they were looking for places to play, and, and at the time, the only things were like church basements or things like that. He said, "Let's go to this place," and we went to we went to the where the nine thirty club was, and it was a, a luncheon dining room. I guess is all you could call it. If you can imagine that main area with the tall ceilings, uh, kind of dimly lit. Uh-huh. Paper tablecloths on tables, uh, little tiki lights in the middle of each table, plastic silverware on each table, and there's a steam table that everything on the steam table looked like it had been there for years, <laughs> and nobody was there. No, I mean, who would want to come there to eat? It was just terrible. And he talked to the owner about. It. He said, "You know, what about getting some revenue in by?" Uh, you know, having some bands here in the evening. And he convinced him to have bands there. And that was the, the Atlantis at the time. So they, they played there. He got the Slicky Boys to play there. And at the time, uh, Robert was in the band called the Urban Verbs, and they played there. And a lot of other bands that could not play anywhere else played there. And what you need is you need people like that just prodding into the community, Come on, let's get the whether it's if it's for visual arts, get a let's get a gallery going in uh, where you know maybe in this this old place here that 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 doesn't seem to be doing much going going on. Or once again, you've got something that's happening during the day at this space, but it really make a good uh, concert venue at night. Maybe that's the way to do it. I mean, just once you get these things moving and you get this undercurrent going. Mm-hmm. Then you have uh, artists thinking, hey, maybe this city isn't so bad for art. And that's what you want. That's what you want. Then then you get people forming bands or just playing music and recording music. Maybe they'll you know take their CD or, or streaming card down to the place where they're going to play and they'll sell it. And they'll tell other bands about it. Hey, you know, we... We sold more CDs than we made playing at this place, you know, so, you know, it's, it's worthwhile. And you, the ball starts rolling from there. Once again, it's, it's part of that. The player, and when I say players, I don't necessarily mean musicians, but I mean all the people that make up an ecosystem. Yeah. The mm-hmm. person, the, you know, maybe it's a, somebody, the, the, the wannabe promoter who 
ends up turning a venue over into a great music venue, which of course attracts bands. Then you know that leads to records being wanting, wanting yeah. to be made and studios opening. And, yeah, it's a big chain. Well, so you just coming back a little bit to you and, and studios. If I have the timing right, you were fifty-two when you started in this building. Is that right? It's probably about right. So nineteen ninety in here. Yeah, but I had been recording in my basement before. So how long were you in your basement? Oh gosh, <laughs> <laughs> probably six or seven years, eight years, nine years. See, I the whole. Uh, let me. Let me bore you with some of my life details. That's why I'm here. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this is really boring, but I, I, st I grew up in a Polish community in Rochester, New York, and I was kind of, uh, well, you know, I was kind of got into mischief here and there like a lot of kids did. So around 10 years old, my parents said, you know, maybe music lessons will sort of set them on the road to getting things straight. So, you know, mostly... People when you think musical estate, piano, violin, Suzuki method, and things like that. Um, I went down to the music store, and of course, in the Polish community, the number one king instrument is the accordion. For a lot of communities, it was at the time. I mean, this, this is the 50s. So I went down there and with my parents. But luckily, Elvis was coming onto the scene. So they offered both accordion or guitar lessons. Oh, Elvis is a lot cooler than Lawrence Welk. So I started playing guitar. And I did it for a couple of years. I was pretty competent, had music theory down pat and stuff like that. And then got kind of bored with it. So I just left it aside. And at the time, I started a little after that. A friend of mine started playing uh, guitar too. And he continued after that. And he, um, he got, got pretty good. But his parents came over one night. They just lived down the street. I hadn't played the guitar in a year or two. And he says, um, you know, still have that old, old guitar that you, you know, used to practice with? I said, yeah, it's in the closet. I think all the strings are there. He said, why not pull it out? The, there's this band, the Beatles. I could teach you some songs. I said, okay. Well, we pulled it out. And he taught me some songs and playing like that. And it was, it was kind of hard at first because, you know, getting back into playing. But I kind of liked it. I kind of like, and the songs were compelling enough so that you wanted to play them over and over again. And plus, uh, the girls liked it too, <laughs> which didn't hurt. So I got into some bands with some people uh, on the street and things like that, but we didn't have any money. And so what we did was we scavenged. These, these are, remember, the 50s and, and early 60s where Magnavox stereos were big, those mm -hmm. big consoles, <clears throat> Spanish consoles with... You know, 75 speakers in them, the radios in there. But they would break down, and people would throw them out. And we would go around on trash day, and we would find these things, and we'd make, put them into speaker cabinets, make speaker cabinets out of them, and take the amplifiers and try to figure out how to make the amplifiers into guitar amplifiers. And luckily, I had some friends who really were very, very good in electronics. I mean, these were people that were just whizzes. One of them just retired. He was a uh, rocket scientist for the Navy, and another was a uh, research scientist for Xerox. And he, he said, well, you can do this easy. All you do is you get a soldering gun. You got a soldering gun, right? And, uh, well, here, you could use mine and solder. And you just 
put this together, put a jack here, you can plug your guitar in, you're set to go. So I got into that thing. And then as it moved along, um, it just, um, I got actually at some point bought a store-bought amplifier and things like that, but I kept playing music. And eventually I went to college for art school. So basically, I don't know anything about this stuff. There's no formal training. <laughs> That's a secret. But I know that if you have a lot of blinking lights and they're nice and colorful, they, they work. <laughs> you could charge some money for that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and at the end of college, there was a thing called the draft lottery. And that was at the, during the Vietnam War. This is in 1970, where um, they figured out the politicians up here across the river said, well, the lottery is not exactly egalitarian. We want to make it really equal across the board. So what we're going to do is everyone who becomes <clears throat> of age, we're going to just pull their birth date out of a hat. And the number we pull them out is the way they're going to be drafted. And I hit number one for the thing. So I was, you know, at the end of getting my bachelor's in fine arts, uh, I was at Syracuse at the time, I um, figured, well, my number's up, so to speak. But I applied for uh, graduate school at West Virginia University in Morgantown. And um, they have to, the Army has to give you a physical before they can actually draft you or induct you. And so they set up my physical, and by the time uh, my physical was set, I was in Morgantown already. I said, uh, you know, I'm not in Rochester anymore. I'm in Morgantown, West Virginia. So the bureaucracy scrambles around, and they set it up for Morgantown. And by that point, it was Christmas vacation. I said, ah, I'm back in Rochester. <laughs> so they scrambled again, and they set it up for uh, Rochester. By that time, I'm back in Morgantown again. And I said, you know, I'm back in Morgantown. Can you fix this up? So they set it up for Morgantown. And then by that time, it's summer. And I said, I'm back in Rochester again. Well, eventually, I mean, summer vacation was long enough where they, they got me. But um, at the time, there just happened to be a program in the Army where you could have a guaranteed training. And so I said, well, I'm going to go in. I, I'm, that's Destin. Um, why don't I get some training in electronics? I've always wanted to know about this stuff, how to, how to really connect up this stuff how to really work on it, you know, some formal training in it. So I signed up for that, for formal training in electronics, and went through basic training, out of basic training to the school where the electronics was at, and I just waited there at the school. I hadn't started yet, and I waited some more. In typical Army fashion, I waited about three or four months, uh, you know, just basically waiting around. And eventually they called me into the office and they said, look, uh, there's lots of people who want to get into electronics school at this point. Lots of people. We have, you know, you have your guarantee of the training, which we will honor. <clears throat> However, the guarantee is for the training. You can come out of electronics school and, and you could be assigned as a cook or something like that. Because that is not guaranteed. Uh, said, but we notice that you have degrees in art. 
So why don't you come to Alexandria, Virginia? They need someone there to paint and draw. In the Army? In the Army. Okay. So that's what I did. I came here. Uh, there's a place, an area called Cameron Station. They used to have a Army base there. Now it's townhouses. And um, I drew and painted for the Army Exhibit Union. And I got into presentation I get, of, of art, uh, which carried through to the studio here. I mean, the presentation is a very, very big thing. Where uh, there I was looking at, you know, it was always, there was an exhibit, there was a final goal. There was an exhibit or there was some sort of presentation on the wall or presentation of a medal or something that we always worked on and, 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 this was a very, very goal-oriented type of, of job, in a sense. Everything in the Army is. So I did that for a couple years. And after that, I left and worked at the National Gallery of Art for about 10 years. In prints and drawings, basically. I was uh, matting and framing prints and drawings, uh, which was wonderful. Uh, boy, some of the things I work with are just amazing. I just... It's a great job, really, really great job. But about halfway through, uh, they took us for a uh, a small group, a tour around the the gallery, and they were just setting up a recording studio to do some of their tour guides and things like that. And they were wiring it up, and they were having trouble wiring up the console, which at the time... uh, I don't want to get too much into detail. Bipolar power supplies they were using. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I was very familiar with them because I'd use them and set things up and things like that. And it was a little bit different from the normal power supply that everybody was used to using. And they were having trouble trying to get it to, to work. I said, well, it's very simple. All you do is this. And he said, you know how to do this? Why don't you record for us? So I just flipped, and I became National Gallery's audio engineer. <laughs> from unbelievable, I, it is unbelievable. I, I couldn't, I, you know, I could <clears throat> never imagine this. So for another five years, I I was their audio engineer in the studio there, and then while I was doing that, I was setting up a studio in my house. Of course, learning more about audio as it went along, and recording bands in the basement. And during this time. Uh, the guy that went to the 930 Club with me, I wasn't playing in the band at the time, but he was playing at a place in town, a club, it doesn't matter. And he said, well, you know, you've got, you've got tape recorders. I had a stereo tape recorder at the time. I recorded, I think I recorded a couple groups, like basically vocals on one channel and music on the other. And then we mix them together and that would be it. So we're not talking about heavy duty here. Uh, he said, you know, record us. Uh, you know, we're going to be playing at this place. So I hauled all my stuff down there, and I think I had four microphones or something like that, and a Sure mixer, and and, uh, there were a couple other bands there. And one of them was one of the basically uh, uh, really established punk band in the the area called the Slicky Boys. And they said, well, you know, you got an extra roll of tape? Maybe you can record us, too, as long as you're here. Sure, sure, I do have an extra roll of tape. So I recorded them. Now, I had... I had no association with the, the punk community at the time. But their manager, he had his finger on the pulse of all the, the, the whole punk rising movement. 
And so when he came down to mix their stuff, he said, uh, you know, you've got to, and it was a really simple setup. He said, um, you know, I'd like to bring another band down here called the Teen Idols. And I said, sure. Wow. So, yeah. And uh, so I heard that. What's, what is this music? You know, they, they don't know how to tune their guitars. Uh, but it worked out quite well. And eventually, you know, it's kind of, the energy was kind of nice. I kind of liked it. And he said, uh, then, um, you know, I've got this, this black punk group, you know, the Bad Brains. They want to record too. Oh. <laughs> he said, but, you know, but I, I can't come that day. I think he was afraid to be along with them. <laughs> um, so he said, just, I'll send them over here and you just record them. So that's what we did. Oh, and my God. all of a sudden, <clears throat> all these punk bands started coming in to the studio. And, I mean, I just, all I did was, I just kept pressing record. I have to ask your demeanor and your, like, your approach. You come from this background, this, you know, through the military, the electronics, the art, and here you are recording Bad Brains and the mm -hmm. Teen Idols. So... What what did you bring to the table in terms of just like, were you just like, hey, I'm Don, let's record. The presentation. Which you learned from yeah, the art from, world. Yes, wow. exactly. Um, I figured out, well, they knew what they had to offer. They had the energy, they had the excitement. Uh, the music sometimes was, was kind of repetitive. Uh, the vocals sometimes weren't the most melodic in the world. The presentation brought about a certain emotional thrust of their music, as you've figured out for over time. And the other studios, once again, you know, we're in the era of the dead drums and all that stuff, uh, didn't or couldn't bring this to the table. Uh, Minor Threat went to another studio before they came to me, and they were just totally put off. First of all, they were for a number of reasons, but uh, it just didn't capture what they wanted. And I, I think I had both the naivete to just sort of go at it, and also I, I, all I had to offer was to give them or to record their excitement. I couldn't give them fidelity. God knows. It was like I, I, my equipment just was not capable of that. But I could just bring across this uh, excitement. And... Oddly enough, the fact that sometimes I really overdrove the equipment made it sound good because that's the kind of sound they were going for. And th this was just coincidence. I mean, the, these, the, the mixers and the microphones were sometimes just peeking out, but they worked. So that the minor threat record mm -hmm. that's got... Uh... Uh, is I guess that's Ian on the front. Actually, it's his brother. It's his brother. Okay. That was recorded in your basement? Yeah. Through the equipment we're talking about. Yeah. I, you know, I upgraded a little bit here and there, but believe me, it was it, it, there was a lot to go up. <laughs> and the Rights of Spring record? Yes. It, that was recorded in your basement? Mm -hmm. It's so interesting because those records, and not all the listeners are going to know these records, but both those records have such a characteristic sound like the minute that Rights of Spring record comes on, it just, it's, if it was recorded in any other way, I, I can't imagine hearing it any other way. Yeah, me neither. Same with the Minor Threat record. Yeah. So whatever you were doing, 
you know, we, we, we obsess about, you know, gear and fidelity sometimes, but man, you really just captured the energy and the essence of those bands that, when did that Minor Threat record come out? When did the Rights of Spring record come out? Ooh. God. It's like early 80s? Yeah. I still listen to those records to this day. Yeah. I mean, sure, there's higher fidelity records out there, but man, that music just to this day really grips me. Yeah. So, yeah, the, um, I have a theory that if you, and this goes for microphones or some pieces of equipment too, that if you have too wide, uh, broad a band of fidelity, uh, sometimes what you're putting into it sort of gets lost in the center and it looks almost like it's swimming around in this. But if you have something that has limitations mm-hmm. and you just pack it, with what the information you're giving it, it sounds better. It sounds like full. It's the only way to put it, really. Yeah. I'm, I, I do have an example of that. And part of it's performance pace, too. I, I was working with this, this, this uh, group of women in a band called Chi-Chi Palace. And uh, the singer, uh, Kat, I remember her doing her vocal. We always said, oh, it's going to be the scratch vocal. And she did it on an SM58 live in the room and then band was done she went to go do what we all said was you know and i'm doing air quotes for listeners the real vocal and we did it on a large diaphragm condenser and the minute she started singing i was like this is wrong this is not right and and the other members sensed it too and i said let's pull the scratch vocal up and we did and the scratch vocal is what ultimately ended up on the record because it just had the energy that lack of fullness it was focused and Mm -hmm. so i I would agree entirely with what you're saying there yeah and different things could play into it too it could be the fact that she was you know with the performers and the rumor things like that Uh, but certainly i think that you you can you can get too broad for yourself you know it just it's almost like overloading the tape you know if you if you keep the tape uh, for those listeners who use tape at you know where the peaks hit minus 10 it sounds wimpy it sounds very wimpy but if you bump your head against the top and maybe bump your head a good deal against the top it sounds better and you know why is that um you know there's got to be something going on Hmm. so i i'm a big proponent of you're pushing things and it's never failed me yet so then when rights of spring breaks up uh minor threat breaks up fugazi is formed mm-hmm. were the fugazi records made in this location or were any of them done at the basement i think they were done all no wait maybe one was done in the basement it was a very transitional period one or two maybe done in the basement because i had a Half-inch 16 track uh-huh. time. I wanted. I got one of those Fostex half-inch 16 tracks. It was. A, it was a good idea. It was uh-huh. a good idea at the time. Um, but you know they were flawed in their own way. Um, but they, um, you know, we did. We used that, and then we brought it here for a few years before I actually got two-inch 24 track. So those those you know repeater plus four songs. I'm trying to remember the order of the records. But like, for example, um, Waiting Room. 
Half inch 16? I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd be hard pressed to. Okay. Yeah. Ian would probably know because he's he's yeah. got all the masters. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. He would know. Now, remember, when we were working on them, usually we had working titles. So even then, I wouldn't know what the titles were. So Waiting Room could have been called I'm Just a Simple Boy, mm-hmm. you know, by the band until it actually was released and got Waiting Room in there. Oh, yeah. So uh, I, you know, usually I, you know, associate, oh, Simple Boy, that's the song. So I don't know the proper title um, with the song itself. You know, you were do- going through these different analog formats. At any point, did any, when, when Pro Tools and, and the rise of the, the digital audio workstation became a thing, did you ever feel pressure to jump into that because of the possibilities? Or did you do it just because you wanted to do it? Ooh. Like, did the band, did I the band's requirements dictate you go that direction at all? Or did you get put yourself in that position because um, you were interested in it? Well, once again, I'm very workaday oriented. So I'm looking at tools all the time. Mm. In other words, what tools will work for me? You know, if I need a Phillips head screwdriver, I get a Phillips head screwdriver. I don't get a flathead screwdriver and try to jerry, you know, screw in. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got into it. During, um, we're going to go into a dark hole here, when uh, Motu had Performer, which, right. which only recorded MIDI. And then they came out with Digital Performer. And of course, Pro Tools was around at the time, but it was way out of my budget. I forget what the prices were, but it was all I knew it was just too much, way too much. So I, I was using basically the Digital Performer first uh with um with some things i think i had i think the original i i bought an interface once i forget i think it was echo was the company mm-hmm. echo layla and i didn't even know you needed a recording program to work with it so i'm you know i'm just sort of wading into this thing i bought the unit itself okay why doesn't this work i called the store up that i got it from he said what recording program are you using i said what do you mean what recording program i got this box I want to record on my computer and he explained it to me and I learned the hard way uh, by going through all these missteps of Mm -hmm. things and then so I got into that and it wasn't until Pro Tools went native that I got into that side of things eventually you got into Pro Tools yes I still use digital performer Um, I I like it the Pro Tools is very well thought out. I hate the company. I think Avid's bloodsuckers, mm-hmm. but you know everybody does. But they're they have a very good program. That's all there is to it. And I use it along with two inch tape. Once again, you know, talking about coincidences, American University, which is just up on towards the Bethesda side of things, uh, they stopped teaching to tape. They're now using all Pro Tools which makes sense because their students are going to go into a digital world. Mm-hmm. And they said, hey, we've got you know, about 200 rolls of two-inch tape that's unspliced. We need to get rid of it. I said, well, funny thing about that. <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah. So I took them, and um, I'm just, I offer people who want to record. I gave a bunch of them to Ian, too, for some of his recordings, if he ever does some more. Uh, I tell bands that come in, hey, record on two-inch tape, 
you know, you can't take the tape home, but you could put it on a hard drive or a thumb drive these days. You know, we could usually do drums and bass, maybe a rhythm guitar, and then bounce it over to Pro Tools mm -hmm. and work on the rest of it because it's easier to edit. Um, and it works out tremendously. It works out really, really well. I love the sound I get on tape. I just enjoy working like that tremendously. I think John uh, Vanderslice at Tiny Telephone in San Francisco does that to this day. Yeah. I, offers I think, the tape. Yeah. yeah. If you can, it's good. I mean, unfortunately, <clears throat> the tech I had working on that died. Um, yeah. So um, my phone calls are not being answered by him. Uh, but, you know, eventually uh, I'll probably have to go all digital. But I don't know when. Mm. And I hope it won't be for... You know, I stopped doing this. In terms of amount of time, like the studios book these days, obviously studios go through fluctuations. Do you have like a percentage of like, is the studio book like 50% of the time, 80%? You know, where capacity wise, where are you at these days? Probably about 50%. Okay. That leaves time for teaching and leaves time for maintenance. And those are just, you know, both of those are big things. You know, maintenance, actually, I'm, I'm falling behind in a lot of areas mm. I've got to take care of. Uh, it's just, it's huge. It really is huge. Mm. So I don't think I could, I don't think I could do it like 80%. I don't think that would work out. You know, unless I brought in more people. But in a way, I'm kind of a control freak mm -hmm. in that I want to have my fingers in everything. And... um I just, I just like it like that. I, I, I really want to be, I want to make sure it's being done to the best I could do it. Because, you know, if my name's going to be on it, I don't want it going out there and then just, oh, you know, it just being badly done. Now when I hear those recordings, I will think of them in an entirely different way. Just <laughs> thinking, wow, that was in Don's basement. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, it's, once again, you know, you're in a, the basement downstairs room was a little larger than this for both. The drums, the bass, guitars, singers, and lower ceilings. Yeah. And still, you know, they, they work within those limitations. Uh, sometimes I think the limitations really push them to sort of like, you know, we, we're, we're really going an uphill journey here because, we, you know, it, this is not like it's normal. Luckily, a lot of the punk bands didn't know what normal was. You know, right, which helped, and didn't have expectations mm -hmm. that of a, of a of a more elaborate setup. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like you know, don't I have a sixteen channel headphone mix or stuff like that? Right. You know, there's uh, where's the runner? I need food. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, they. I I remember. Um, I think it was a few years into being here at the first time they uh, one band brought in a catering for just little finger sandwiches or something yeah have i arrived <laughs> you know you know and it was probably costco or something like that but you know it was just it, it was different it's very very different it's different than energy bars or well <laughs> i you know we didn't even talk about this uh i did see the the sonic highways episode uh mm -hmm. that was shot here and I'm sure that was quite an operation to have the Foo Fighters come in here and it was and Butch and I mean that's not exactly a a little band right 
And they brought along that film company too, so which was pretty huge. Yeah, they were, uh, they were all, I mean, the place was packed. There were even some in the attic. There's an attic here that's got a kind of a low ceiling and they put up fluorescent strips of tape so that they wouldn't bump their heads in the attic. I guess they edited some of the film at nights up there. It was just crazy. How long were they here? A week. Amazing. It was. Yeah. So for the listeners, if you haven't seen the Sonic Highways episode on HBO with the Foo Fighters, can't remember what episode that was. Uh, three, I think. Two or three. Yeah. You got to check it out if you want to have a, a real great glimpse into Inner Ear and, and see Dawn. And, and it's, it's pretty fascinating. So this has been great, Don. I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this. It's really this is my just pleasure. really great to be able to talk with you about this stuff. And thanks, Don. You're welcome. Very welcome. Wow. Don Ziantara here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I'm still just stunned that I got to sit down and have a chat with Don. Such a fantastic guy. So unfortunately, we are out of time. So let's thank everybody. Definitely want to thank Don Ziantara for being on the show. I want to thank my crew. Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, Cole Williams. I want to thank our sponsors, Gearslets.com, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, and Universal Audio. Thank you to my audience. I appreciate you listening as usual. And you all have a safe and happy new year coming up. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com. Check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.